Grab your Bibles, 1 Peter 1. That's where we're going to be the next four weeks as we uh, do our Advent series here in 1 Peter, uh, talking about the subjects and the topic of hope that, that Scott alluded to as we were singing. And um, this is kind of the four parts that we're going to break down over the next few weeks. We're going to talk about sort of this rebirth of hope that we have in Jesus this morning because of Christ. We're going we're to open with that because this is how Peter opens his book. And then we're going we're gonna to look through Peter's lens of hope when it comes to things such as suffering and things like our holiness and how we're becoming more holy and, and how that can be a really rough road for us as God is sanctifying us and where we find hope in that. And then we're going to end on Christmas Eve morning uh, talking about having a hope that abides or hope, or hope that lasts. And so these themes are going to be kind of intermingled through, through the entire series. Going to be a lot of overlap as we kind of unpack how hope looks in all the day-to-day, uh, you know, kind of details of our lives. And before we start, I just want to give a definition of hope. And we're going to kind of run off this definition uh, for just for the remainder of the series. And this is how we would define hope. And we'd say it like this. It's a, a confident expectation of future blessing based on facts and promises. That sounds kind of wordy now that I read it to you. Um, let me read it again. A confident expectation of future blessings based on facts and promises. So um, my hope for this series, it's short, um, is for us to see hope for, for what it is and that it's, it's gritty. Hope is gritty. And I don't think we often see it like that. I think when, when we see hope, um, we, we don't think of it as being a heavy thing. In reality, hope is, it's heavy, right? When we are having this confident expectation of future blessings based on facts and promises, that all works out great if like all of y'all are robots. But the fact is, is that we're human beings and we come up close to hope, we come close to this having, wanting to have this confident expectation. We, we get close to these facts and promises that we see. I don't know why I put that in quotes. It's not in quotes. I put that in quotes and point to the scripture. It's like, are you even a pastor? Why do you believe this? Yeah, that was just a faux pas. Um, but, but this confident expectation, we get close to that. Um, and yet we, we get close to it as human beings. And so sometimes we, we like to soften the blow of hope. But, but hope is, a, is an act of faith right? It's, um, it, it's, it's believing in things that we can't see. And so there's a grittiness to hope. And I think we've sanitized hope. We certainly sanitize it at this time of the year, but we want to stop seeing it as just this sentimental thing, as like the sentimental line from a Hallmark movie, you know, um, hoping for a holly jolly Christmas, right? There's probably been like seven movies already released this season since Thanksgiving with that title. Um, that's, that's fine. Um, but, that, but that sort of gives us sort of like a, sort of like a, like a, almost like a very thin sort of, you know, look and, and view of hope um, because hope is grittier than that. And hope is something that lives in the low down places of our lives, Right? It's lived out in the foxholes of our lives, in the trenches of our lives. It's saying, I'm going to believe in my heart that God is true, even though my eyes can't see a darn thing right now, right? Am I allowed to say darn? Is that okay? Um, This is what hope is in the Bible. Hope Hope is Noah in the flood 
saying, I can't see this rain ever stopping. And it smells real bad in here, right? But I'm going to trust the one who gave me the blueprints to build this ark in the first place. That's hope, right? Hope is Jacob. Remember Jacob, the father of the nation of Israel on a floor mat wrestling with God on the night before he was about to meet his brother Esau of whom he stole his birthright from. Hope is Jacob on a floor mat wrestling with God, it tells us, saying, I won't let you go, God, until you bless me. And then saying, in the limp that I'm going to have for the rest of my life that you're going to give me as the result of this wrestling will somehow be part of that blessing. I'm hoping that what comes as the result of this wrestle with you, it's something that fills my life with remembrance and hope of who you are and what you're doing. Hope is Joseph. Remember Joseph, one of 12 brothers, the son of who got sold into slavery because of the jealousy and the envy of his brothers. It's Joseph, face down on a prison floor, grieving the life his brothers took away from him, but not letting it grind his faith to a halt. Why? Because he trusted God had not forgotten him through the tragedy of those lost years that he had in his life. These men had hope because their faith was held secure by God but they lived in the grit of it, right? They lived in the grit and in the tension of hope. There's a line in the song, Silent Night. You've already probably heard that song 207 times, um, but it says the hopes and fears of all the years are what? Met in thee tonight. And it seems like that's what Christmas brings, right? It's good that they said hopes and fears. The tension of hope and fear. There's all kinds of questions that for some reason, I don't know why, they just tend to surface at this time of the year because we're not just facing a, a holly jolly Christmas season, but we're facing the prospect of a new year. And with the new year comes questions for us, right? Questions like, what's it going to bring? I didn't have a great year. Is, is something, is, are things going to shift when the calendar turns from December 31 to January 1, right? What will the new year bring? It's all dark. I don't know. Will I finally achieve what I've been working for? Maybe you've been working towards something for so long and you haven't seen the fruit of that and you wonder all this work, all this effort, will, will I have made some progress? Will I just be at a standstill once again? You wonder about all the things you do. Will they succeed? Will, will they fail? All these endeavors that you're a part of, whether it's related to your work or your relationships or your marriage, your school, will I succeed? Will I fail? Where will I be this time next year? And our hearts, they long for hope. They're positioned to long for hope, but they get lost in fear, right? We all live in the tension of this. We all do. You can't help it, right? But what we rarely ask is how, how we should live. We live in the tension of it, but we never ask, how do we live? in the tension of hope and fear as Christians. So we turn to 1 Peter 1 because the Apostle Peter has some words for us. And so I'm going to start with just the, the first two verses, which are kind of a setup, and then I'm going to read verses 3, 4, and, and uh, 5, which are going to be our main, main text for the morning. But Peter starts in his letter. Remember, he was one of the 12 uh, disciples of Jesus, as we, as we know about from just getting through our series in John. But he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion 
in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and uh, Bithynia. So when he, when he says the dispersion, it's, it's these Jewish Christians that have been dispersed to all these different regions, all these different areas. And then he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Nobody has ever like started a letter to me like that personally, right? Um, I remember when Melissa and I were dating and I mean, we would send each other some letters and um, I mean, it never started like that for her to me. I never started it like that for her either, to be, to be fair. But Peter is writing to Greek speaking Jews and he refers to them as elect exiles. And so the reminder for them um, and the reminder for us is that if you are a Christian, you are a temporary resident, make no mistake, like, let's make sure this is stated right at the top, right? You're a temporary resident on earth. And during your time here, you are going to receive some things. You are going to receive a particular kind of abundance from God. And it's going to be an abundance of his grace, an abundance of his peace. And he does that through the work, the Trinitarian work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what he says right here. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So nowhere does the Bible say the word Trinity, but it really expresses it pretty explicitly in some places like what we see Peter doing here in verse 2 of, of his letter, right? And so that's the foundation that Peter lays out because the theme of 1 Peter is that Christians do indeed suffer. So when he talks about this sanctification and this sprinkling with his blood and he's saying, look, grace and peace, I want that to be multiplied to you because he knows the people he's writing to and he knows the churches that are going to be reading this and he knows that they're suffering in some particular and in some unique ways, right? He understands that Christians will suffer. Nobody was under any, nobody was under any illusion back then that when they came to the faith, that somehow life was just going to be all like peaches and roses, you know, after that. And I think some of us kind of believe that. We think I left all my problems behind when I came to Christ. It's like maybe some of them, but you adopted a whole new set, right? A whole new set of problems, right? Um, this is the foundation that Peter lays out. He's writing to suffering Christians, Christians that will be tested for their faith. But they will learn that during these times of suffering and testing how to live holy and obedient lives that remain hopeful, that grow in hopefulness during the process. And for some reason, and I don't know why, uh, we seem to see suffering and testing the kind that Peter talks about in his letter, we, we seem to see it amplified during this particular season, right? And it can feel kind of odd if we're being honest. Like we have this ability to add all these heartwarming traditions uh, to our lives during the, the Christmas season, but we have no ability to remove any of the hardships, right? We add all these traditions, we can't remove any of the suffering, we can't remove any of the pain, right? It's, it's just kind of like, you know, snuggling show, snow in the winter, Right? We, we, we shovel that snow, right? but we can't do anything to prevent it from falling again and needing us to shovel it once again to clear the path. So no matter what we do, no matter what kind of traditions or, or things that we do that sort of create the Christmas season that we love and that is good, um, we still have these underlying things that no amount of tradition is going to, in a sense, eliminate 
for good. And so Peter has some things to say to the church about what hope looks like when you can't just simply shovel away all of the suffering and all of the hardships for good. And this is meant to give us encouragement. Um, This is not meant to fix your problems. This is meant to embolden your faith during seasons, especially this season, that might be incredibly difficult. Look at what he says as we pick up in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If Christians have a living hope, like the hope that Peter just laid out, what do we need to make sure that we never lose sight of it? What do we need to make sure that we don't lose sight of it? I have three points that I want to bring out today. They're going to sound a little over the top. Just going to give you a heads up right there. Not because I'm trying to be over the top, but because hope is over the top when it's seen through the heart of God. And so my first point is this, is that the one thing we don't want to lose sight of, according to Peter here, is the unimaginable magnitude of God's mercy, of God's merciful plan. He says it right here. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to to his great mercy. In other words, because of his great mercy, because he's a God that encompasses the the very embodiment of mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. There there is an unimaginable aspect of God's mercy and and unimaginable magnitude of God's mercy. Like we sing his mercy is more. And so what we do is we try to visualize sort of this ever flowing fountain of mercy that comes pouring out to us as God's people. But like we can only get so far with it, right? And even when Peter's writing about it, he's just using language that we can understand, but he can only get so far with it. So there's, there's something that's unimaginable about it, which is good, right? Because if we could kind of imagine it, I don't know how great it would be, right? Because my mind kind of freezes it. It stops at a certain point. I'm not the most imaginative uh, person in the world, even though I tell Melissa that I am. I am one of the most imaginative people in the world. Um, but I'm not. So I, I get to the end of my own, my own limitations of thought when I think of God's mercy, And so even this line, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. There's there's a magnitude to what Peter is trying to draw us into. Like 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 when a filmmaker opens up a scene in a movie and he presents this vast like landscape that he's created or she's created and they're, they're drawing you in. They're trying to widen your imagination. It's like Peter's trying to widen our imagination here to the scope of God's great mercy. And the reason any of us needs mercy is, is not because we did something so amazing. It's not because you woke up this morning and God said, I am stoked with you and the job you're doing. Therefore, have another cup of mercy. Like he does, That's not why we need God's mercy. The reason we need mercy is because we did something deserving of punishment. And you all know this, how this works from the times when you clean up somebody else's mess. Now, if you're a parent, you know, you're already shaking your head, right? Like you did it like seven times this morning. But it's not just if you have kids, right? If you have friends, you have people that you love, 
right? You clean up your friend's messes. You clean up your spouse's mess. You clean up somebody else's mess. By the way, it's within your rights to make that person clean up their own mess, right? You're not under any obligation to clean up a mess that somebody else made, kind of, right? But you go ahead and you clean it up for them anyway. And why, why the heck? Why do you do this? Well, you do it because you're extending mercy. It's according to your mercy that you clean up somebody else's mess. And that mercy is something that is motivated by love. The reason why you have mercy is because you have love for that person. And if it's real mercy, if it's real mercy, it's applied with no strings attached, right? You don't make the person whose mess you cleaned up promise they'll keep it clean or else no mercy. I know, with, with kids... You got to apply a little bit of that sometimes, right? I get it, right? Don't, don't go too far with that. But God provided you the salvation of Jesus according to his great no-strings-attached mercy. In other words, his mercy flows from the greatness of his love, right? Because God is love, his mercy is fully encompassed within that love. So God is all-loving, he's also all-merciful. Right? There's not, it's not a part of him. It's not like an attachment. Right? It's not like something that's on his belt. It's not like a tool like, well, I'm just going to pull out my mercy today. It's like it's who he is. Just like love is who God is. Right? His mercy flows from the greatness of his love, not the scarcity of it. And that's important for us to recognize. It's important for us to understand because that's different with how we are able to extend mercy or how, or how we um, very humanly sometimes extend mercy with a lot of strings attached, which is, all right, I'm going to give you a break, but I expect you to perform. That's not gone. Because here's the thing we often forget, and it's that our sin was great, right? Our sins, they are many. What's the line we sing? His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many. Our sins, they were great. Like our sin was not the equivalent of spilling hot chocolate on a white carpet, right? And I think sometimes we think of our sin in that sense. Like, man, I just screwed up. I just, I just messed up. I spilled a little hot chocolate on the white carpet. I'll clean it up. It's no big deal. It's just this little stain. We get the carpet people in, whatever. I hope, I hope nobody's too mad. We spill things. It happens. Right? We think of our sin like that. Our sin did not cause God the Father to roll his eyes and go, geez, not again. Right? Our sin wasn't some annoying but relatively easy cleanup job. Our sin was a crime so cosmic that it literally put the entire universe out of order. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1 where the whole universe was literally like just cast into disorder because of the sin of Adam. How is that possible? Well, it shows you how wide the effects of sin go, right? And by the way, it is so hard to think of your sin like that. I mean, isn't it? I mean, when you think of your sin, do you think of it as being big enough to literally set the entire universe out of sync? Do you think your sin is big enough to, to, to set what God created into a state of just decay? Because I don't think we think of it like, I mean, I do not think of it like that. I didn't wake up this morning, look in the mirror and see myself as someone who committed treason against God 
set the universe completely out of order and should be sentenced to physical and spiritual death row if it wasn't for God's great mercy. I just don't see it as being that cosmic. I don't see it as being that big. I don't, I don't think of myself that way. But God did, right? Remember in Ephesians 2 where Paul talks about us living in the passions of our flesh and that we are by nature children of wrath until God, being rich in what? Mercy made us alive in Christ. This is why, according to his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again. It's not little, right? It's not light. It's meant to bring us into a place of sobriety. It's why we sing the songs that we do like his mercy or more. I mean, it, it's a catchy melody, and it needs to be so that we remember it. Um, but the words, the words are deep, and we, we need to receive those words. So when you sing, my sins, they are many, his mercy is more, right? Sometimes we can get lost in the melody, but the message of that is cosmic. It goes deeper than you can fathom. It goes higher than, than you can fathom but we don't see it like that. This is what Peter's trying to get across when he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A dead man had to rise from the dead so that you had the mercy you needed to not be made dead because of your sin for all eternity. It's just that big. It's just that big, which is why hope is gritty and why hope is big. See, if hope just floats, if hope is just like these signs that we made, I love these signs, but if hope is just these banners that we made, if that's what hope is, if hope is just the stuff we put on coffee mugs to kind of give us a pick-me-up for the day, it's not big enough. It's not deep enough. It's not grimy enough. It doesn't hit the dark places of your life. And that is what I would say Peter is arguing here. You've been born again to what? A living hope. A living hope, right? Not the hope of Hallmark movies, right? Not the hope of like Instagram memes. It's fine. I just watched a Hallmark movie two nights ago. Like, don't judge me. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. But it's not the hope that Peter is getting. It's not the resurrection from the dead hope. That Peter's getting at here, that he's trying to communicate to us, right? We just minimize hope. We minimize hope. I remember, um, it's the dumbest story I'm going to tell you right now. Um, I remember one day we came home, this was just so long ago. We came home after we'd finished decorating the house for Christmas. We had the tree up, we did the whole thing. And um, I came back and we walked in the door and my tree was just like toppled to the floor. Um, yeah, thank you, Nora. Um, it was a moment. All the ornaments, <laughs> they're just scattered all over the ground, right? It kind of felt like if you ever watched The Grinch this Little Christmas and hear that one ornament that was left kind of creaking and rolling down the floor, that's how it felt, right? Um, it was just, it was horrible. I mean, like, I don't remember what, I, I remember just stopping and we were just frozen right there. It was like, like some lumberjack who hated Christmas broke in and chopped down the tree, right? You know? Um, it turns out it wasn't a lumberjack. Um, it was our cat. It was our cat. Um, my cat was responsible for destroying Christmas that year. Um, I had a big mess to clean up and my cat lived, right? I had thoughts. My cat lived. 
Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I didn't really have to extend my cat that much mercy and grace. It was just, it was an accident, right? It was just an accident as he was trying to climb up the inside of the tree, as cats like to do, right? Um, when we think of our sin, we shouldn't think of it in that sense. We shouldn't think of it in that light of, of a sense. Because then that diminishes how we think of hope. That diminishes how we think of the heaviness of hope and how God has applied it to our lives through the resurrection of his son from the dead so that it can be something that is heavy, it can be something that's gritty, it can be something that is like a light that shines in the darkest places of your existence. When we minimize it, right, when we think of it in those ways, right, our sin was just not an accident. It's not trivial. It required the magnitude of God's merciful plan to save us, and that that's what God gives you eyes to see when you're saved. That's what God gives you eyes to see. Your hope finds its source in something not trivial, in the right raising of a dead man. Peter says you've been reborn to a living hope in the form of a living person who killed death. And it's an event not to be missed because of its magnitude, right? We all have events in our lives that we don't want to miss. You know, last night we had the Christmas tree lighting. We had the parade. It was this massive thing. It was amazing. And um, it's something not to be missed. It's a spectacle. It's something to create, something for you to look forward to. It's something to create a memory that can exist in your minds, in, uh, in just in the life and the events, in the, the photo albums, if we still have those as families, um, all of those things. Um, we don't want to miss the magnitude of God's mercy towards us. This is what Peter is saying here. Here's the second thing we don't want to lose sight of. We don't want to lose sight of the everlasting quality of God's inheritance. The everlasting quality of God's great inheritance. This is what he says in verse 4. We have been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance, verse 4, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. We want those things. Those things are true. They also simultaneously are things that you want and they're things that you desire more than anything else in the world. That's the kind of hope you desire. You desire an imperishable and undefiled and unfading and a kept hope. And that comes through the inheritance, Peter is telling us, that we receive because of Christ's resurrection. So all the things that, that God is going to bless us with are the things that he has blessed Jesus with. And it's an inheritance, right? It's these riches of God's grace and mercy and presence. And guess what? They're not like the inheritances we received today, which are good, right, when they don't tear the family apart. But they're also not forever. They're not imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept. But those are the things that we want and those are the things that are given to us as an inheritance because of God's great mercy. And then what that creates is not just a hope that these things won't ever fade, but a living hope because we've been giving unfading, imperishable, undefiled things. We want things that are imperishable. What does imperishable mean? Well, it's wanting something that doesn't spoil. You just want something that doesn't spoil. If you drive down the streets of Ashland right now, um, you're going to see a gruesome sight at some houses. And if I'm shaming some of you right now, I apologize in advance. But you're going to see pumpkins 
still on the steps of some houses that look scarier than anybody could have possibly imagined they looked when they first carved those things. They're all sunken in, they're all bleeding out, right? All the faces, there, they're all, I mean, it's, it's a horror show, right? Driving down Ashland right now, looking at people's pumpkins. Those things are perishable, right? When you carve that pumpkin, you're not thinking, it's awesome, I only had to carve one pumpkin one day in my life and it's good for life. It's like, no, you know that the clock is ticking on that pumpkin. It's supposed to be the Christmas season, guys, but if you still have your pumpkins out there, you know that it's had its day. It's perishable. It's perishable, right? It's something that is not going to last. It spoils. We like things that are undefiled. What do we mean by undefiled? We want something that can't be damaged. We want something that can't be damaged. And in fact, we want something that we can't damage because we know how we damage things. So we want some, God gives us an inheritance that is undefiled, which means even we can't mess with it. Even we can't jack it up, right? My dad loved, he loved buying new trucks. And every three years that dude would buy a new truck. I don't know, he'd buy a new truck. They were like his babies. Um, he didn't buy expensive sports cars. He bought, honestly, pretty cheap little mini trucks. But that, he loved them, right? And that's what he bought. They were his babies. He, he was maniacal in the way that he kept him clean, too. I mean, these things were, were spotless. I could probably still learn a few things from him on that. Um, but here's what's so funny about this guy. The minute they got scratched, he lost his love. I mean, the minute there was the first dent or scratch on the truck, it was like he didn't wash it as much. He didn't talk about it. He, didn't, he wasn't you know, constantly washing it and cleaning it and buffing it out and all that stuff. He just completely lost his love. He had a fickle love for his mini trucks. As soon as they weren't perfect... He kind of despised them. Then he had to wait, you know, like, I don't know, two years or whatever to buy another truck, right? He felt like the truck had turned on him in some ways, right? Um, that's a whole other conversation, right? But, um, but he loved those trucks. What he wanted was a truck that could be undefiled, no, a, a scratchless truck, a dentless truck, right? And that's what we want too. We want to know that we have something of which nothing else can damage it. Our heart longs for that. Peter's saying, you have that. You have that when you have this living hope that's been given to you because of Christ. You have an inheritance that nothing can defile. He talks about it also being unfading, which is wanting something that doesn't wear out over time. We want something that doesn't wear out over time. You know, every time you paint something, right? Every time you paint something, it's proof that we are drawn, number one, to beauty, and number two, we are drawn to things that don't fade over time. That's why we paint. That's why there's a paint industry, right? Why is that? Because we want something that's going to look new. We want something that's not going to fade. Do we know we're going to have to repaint it? We do. That's why we don't put all of our hope in paint, right? Because we know it fades. Our hearts long for something that is not going to fade, that is not going to diminish, that is not going to wear out in that way. And then Paul tells us finally that it's kept, it's an inheritance that is kept in heaven for, for us. It's secure. It doesn't get lost, right? It doesn't get lost. We lose things. We lose things all the time. And in fact, a lot of us are afraid and we're, we have all these sort of like methods and mechanisms that we do. We, we place things in certain places so that they don't get lost. Have you ever done something where, have you ever put something somewhere where you go, all right, I'm putting it here for the, for the purpose of this is such a random place that I won't forget where I put it when I need to remember where I found it. And then like you never remember 
that you, well, that's just me. You never remember that you put it there, right? We want things that are kept. We want to know that something won't get lost. I literally don't, I don't know about you guys, but I literally don't possess one toy that my parents bought me in all the years they bought me toys for my birthday or for Christmas. And what's funny is they meant the world to me at the time. I'm going to bum out every kid that's still with, with us here this morning. They meant the world. They meant so much to me at the time. And I had some great toys, right? It was the 70s. I had a, uh, you ready for this? I had a big wheel Batmobile. Some of you, only a few of you guys know what that is. I had a $6 million man action figure. That was a big one. And really the big one for me was an Evil Knievel wind-up motorcycle. Oh, Hmm. I have none of those toys to this day. If I did, I would be a millionaire because I think that's what they sell for on eBay right now, or I could, could resell them. But I had the gold standard of kids' toys in the, in the 1970s. Um, and unless, honestly, there's some storage unit in heaven that God has been keeping all of my old toys in, these items are lost forever, right? Unless I buy them secondhand on eBay, right? They're, they're lost. They're not kept for me. Paul, Peter is saying... You have an inheritance that is kept, it's guarded, it's safe by God. Why? Because it was given by God. And it was sealed by the Holy Spirit. It can't go anywhere. It was given to you according to his great mercy. And this is why you can have a hope that is not only living, but that is reborn in you. That comes alive again in you. That reminds you, that lifts you out of some of the things that you forget about when you think about this world, when you think about this life, when you think about the things that are hard for you and it seems like there's no end and it seems like you're not making any progress. You can remember that you have something that is here for you now and it is waiting for you later and it cannot be touched. That is what you want and that is what you have. Paul said in Ephesians 1, 11, he said, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Listen to this. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. You see where Paul takes it for us. We were the first to hope in Christ. It, this might end for us in a place that just gives praise to God for the glorious magnitude of his mercy and his hope that we have because of Jesus. It's so deep. It's so gritty, right, if you can get that. So let me close with this, because this is what we see at the very end of our verses for today in verse 5. And we see that hope is found in this eternal guarantee of God's promises the eternal guarantee of God's unbreakable promises as we read five, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let me read that again. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That doesn't mean that you don't know you have salvation. That means it's going to be revealed to its fullest extent. So all these things that Peter is encouraging us in, all these things that we just maybe see a glimpse of at times, you know, we see different percentages of at, at, at a time in this world, we're going to see in its fullest someday. And that's part of this guarantee of God's promises given the inheritance that we have through Christ, right? So what Christmas illustrates 
is this craving we all have for assurance. This craving we all have for guarantees. We sing about it every week in our liturgy. We do our assurance of grace. Why do we do that part? Why, you know, we, we, do this, we do this time of confession where uh, uh, Scott has us bow our heads, usually gives us time to kind of you know, go before the Lord personally, and then he leads us in a corporate prayer to acknowledge that we're all sinners. We're all working out our sin before the Lord, working out our salvation with fear and trembling before God together. Right? And then he leads us, he finishes, or somebody else on the platform finishes up with, with a prayer, corporate c- confession. And then we go into what's called our assurance of grace. Why? Well, because our sin, our sin isn't the end, right? We have an assurance now of God's grace. This is the living hope. This is the living hope that Peter's driving at here, according to God's great mercy, is that we have this assurance of it. We can bank on it. We can count on it. It's a promise that is unbreakable because God can't lie. So we sing about that every week in our liturgy to remind you that you have a guarantee. And by the way, it's not bad to want a guarantee. We want a guarantee. You want a guarantee. I want to know beyond all doubt that something is going to deliver on its promise. I just, I got to have that or what's the point in living? I got to know that something's good. That something's going to deliver. Peter says we find our lifetime guarantee in Christ. Have you ever wondered why you pay the extra money for the lifetime guarantee when you buy a product? It's a lifetime guarantee. I mean, like, am I, like if I live to be 104, am, am I really going to still have this product? Am I still going to have this? Am I still going to be using this like dated like iPhone that I bought like 48 years ago? But like we're still... <laughs> We're still drawn to this lifetime guarantee thing. Why? Well, because it'll get fixed along the way, right? But there's something about them using the words lifetime that just sucks us in, right? We just love that. We love thinking that as long as I'm breathing breath, they have responsibility for my iPhone 27, right? We like that. We love that. And there's something intrinsic in us that has hearts that are eternal, right? Ecclesiastes tells us eternity is written on our hearts, Solomon said. It's written on our hearts. We naturally bend towards things that are eternal. We bend towards it. It's in us. It encompasses who we are. We want a lifetime guarantee. Peter says our lifetime guarantee is in God because everything God does endures forever. God is protecting the investment he made with Christ for your future salvation. Everything else, insecure. Christ, secure. So if all of this is true, it means that your hopes and your fears for the new year, they take on a different face. They take on a different face. C.S. Lewis said, if we see this life as satisfaction, it'll break us. And then he says, but if we see it as preparation, it's not so bad, right? The story of Christmas is that God came to earth so that one day we could go to heaven to be with God, right? And that's kind of basic. That's saying it in a basic way, maybe, but it's beautiful, isn't it? This is why Christian hope is a hope that is distinguished from all other hopes, Peter makes sure he defines the hope we have as a living hope because it could just be a hope for temporary things that work for a while but eventually give out, right? It's kind of like things that we put batteries in, right? 
Batteries are awesome. I love things that run off batteries because I don't have to mess with a power cable. And I can move it wherever I want because it's not chained to an outlet. Um, but all the appliances in my house that need batteries, they don't run forever on batteries, right? I've never bought one battery one time for every device in my house and been like, man, batteries are sweet, they're forever. You know, they're self-perpetual like motion machines, right? That's the only science thing I've ever learned. Um, the Energizer Bunny. Do you guys remember the Energizer Bunny? He's a, he's a sweet guy um, because he lasts longer than the other bunnies, right? Um, but eventually the Energizer Bunny stops beating that drum, man, right? With or without the Duracells, you know? The reason you need a living hope is because every other hope in your life, let me say it like this, is battery powered. It's just battery powered. It's gonna need to be replaced with another battery. It works for a while, but eventually it runs out. That might be a good way to describe the kind of hope that you have this morning. If you reflect on the things in your life that you have a tight grip over, but they are letting you down and they are running out of juice, right? They last for a season, they give you some hope, they run, but it's not really a living, thriving, eternal hope. I'm gonna finish with some thoughts on a Charlie Brown Christmas, all right? If you guys remember Charlie Brown, and you do, I can't explain Charlie Brown. If you don't, ask uh, Kyle Gordon, and he'll, uh, he'll lay out his love for all things Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown's hopes are raised when he's asked to direct the Christmas play. He's a guy that is just always kind of in the background. He doesn't have a lot of friends. He's not taken very seriously. He's kind of a punching bag for a lot of his friends and acquaintances. That's what you kind of get the sense of. He's a little bit of a Debbie Downer, a little bit of a kind of a sad sack. But Charlie Brown's hopes are raised when he's asked to direct the Christmas play, if you guys remember the, the cartoon. But then they're dashed almost as quickly as they were raised because he realized that he's not a great director and nobody wants to follow his lead. And it isn't until he buys this very small and fragile Christmas tree that Charlie Brown is brought back to what's important. In his despair about Christmas becoming too commercialized, that's one of the things that was getting Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown was actually, in his own way, he was trivializing Christmas himself. It wasn't wrong for Charlie Brown to hope for a less commercial Christmas, but a less commercial Christmas wasn't the answer to get a more hopeful one in that sense. Charlie Brown's eyes were on the wrong things and the result was what? It was hopelessness. It wasn't until this moment in the show when his know-it-all buddy Linus with the blanket turned the spotlight on himself, which I always find to be really amazing, and shared the gospel with Charlie Brown and Charlie Brown's friends that his hope that Charlie Brown's hope was reborn and he stopped focusing on the play. He stopped focusing on his abilities as a director. He stopped focusing on the commercialization of Christmas and how depressed that made him. He stopped focusing on his dog's extravagantly decorated doghouse, award-winning doghouse. He stopped focusing on all the other things that essentially ran off batteries. And it was Charlie Brown's reborn hope that allowed him to see 
that this little Christmas tree that he bought could stand if it received the love and the mercy that it needed. God wants to replace your battery-powered hope with a grittier hope, with the living hope of Jesus. And listen, compared with the extravagances of what we see around us, especially at this time, Christianity can look a lot like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree that is just hopelessly fragile and unable to stand. The difference is that, listen, whatever the world's perception of Christianity is, we know we have an eternal guarantee of God's unbreakable promises. This is the hope that you have if you have Jesus. This is the hope that can be reborn in you and replace all of your battery-powered hopes. This Christian journey is going to feel like putting your hopes in a tiny, green, fragile tree at times. But that's only because we're used to putting batteries in self-powered hopes that eventually run to the ground, require us to put more and more batteries in. So my encouragement to you this morning, take a hard look as this season unfolds before it gets away from you. It goes so fast. Some of you guys want it to go fast. But before it gets away from you, step back and reflect on those things, on those hopes, those narratives that are like you going to the store and buying pack after pack of Duracells, putting those batteries in, these things that you're looking at to last and to last and to last, and then dealing with the anxiety and the fear that comes with knowing they won't, and instead turn that hope, shift that hope back to Jesus. The living hope you have because of God's great mercy, it's bigger than the universe. And if you have Jesus, that's what you have. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this mercy that we have that allows us to have a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Lord, we, we're human beings, and I thank you that you understand that about us. Um, Lord, would you help us in this season? This is a really difficult season um, it's one that's even harder because we have expectations for it to be a certain way. And those, those are rarely met for us, Lord. And um, so when we read these words from Peter and we read about this inheritance that we have from you um, that's guarded through faith by your power for the salvation that's going to be revealed to us in glory, Lord, we want to thank you for that. We want to praise you for that. Lord, I pray that you would refresh that truth in our hearts this morning. I pray that you'd refresh it true in my heart. I pray that you'd refresh it true in all the hearts of the, the women and the men and the kids in this room today. And Lord, we want a hope that is lived out in the low down places. We wanna see that light in the dark places. We want to experience this gritty hope. We wanna fight for it. We also wanna receive it. Help us to do both, Lord. Help us to live in that tension and give you praise and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.